When people experience a mental health crisis or homelessness, the best person to help may not be a uniformed and armed police officer. So who are you going to call? The story of the CAHOOTS program in Oregon. That's on this episode of Criminal Injustice. Criminal Injustice is a listener-supported project. Become a member at patreon.com slash criminalinjustice. Welcome to Criminal Injustice. I'm David Harris, your justice nerd and geek extraordinaire, your guide to everything in the criminal legal space, and still so lucky to have that day job at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. This, my friends, this is the first episode of our 10th season. Let that sink in. 10 seasons. We've brought you the stories and insights and comments of some of the most impactful people in the field looking to change and improve the criminal justice system. And we use those last two words, justice and system, in air quotes, because we know from these conversations and so many others that, as my friend said to me a few weeks ago, we don't always get justice and you can hardly call some of it a system at all. We've heard from people who've been working for reform and transformation, some for decades. There have been activists, journalists, researchers, and practitioners judges, police officers, and their chiefs of department, lawyers, both prosecutors and defense attorneys, and the formerly and presently incarcerated. It's been a real honor and a wonderful gift to speak to these people and bring them to you these five and a half years. And it has all been for you, our listeners. We appreciate you and we especially appreciate those who support us with a contribution on Patreon. Thank you so very much. Now, this new season, we're going to be hearing periodically about alternatives to policing as a path to public safety. One thing we heard in the great outcry that followed the murder of George Floyd at the end of May of 2020 and that continued for months was that people wanted real change in public safety, not tinkering around the edges. Some went all the way from speaking of change to speaking of abolishing, that is, abolishing the police, defunding the police, doing away with police. I found in my own work in this space and the many hours of conversations and talks and presentations I participated in that defund and abolish had about as many meanings and interpretations as there were people I met and discussed this with. There were some who took it and meant it, literally. But most, the great majority in my own experience, did not. They wanted something very different than the policing they were getting. But only some, a minority, if a very vocal one to be sure, wanted no more police. And I found that this did not break down by any kind of neat racial lines. Most of the Black Americans I talked to did not want no more police. They wanted very different policing and also different types of public service. Because, listen, let's let's take seriously here the concept of 
abolishing the police for the sake of argument. At its best, this would only give you half an answer because the question would immediately become, okay, no more police. Now what? What, in other words, should replace policing to fill out the picture of public safety for all? Now, that question, for my money, is much more challenging, and it's where the real world and its messiness must be seen for what they actually are. Not ideology. A practical answer is what we need. And that question stopped, honestly stopped, some of the defund and abolish discussions after initial enthusiasm. See, for example, Minneapolis itself. So the work we have becomes, let's reimagine what policing can be, what it can do in a way that will give us the kind of public safety that we want. What does that look like? Now, one of the things that pops up in every reimagining conversation I've been part of has been to ask about certain crisis situations police get called in to handle regularly, and that can go terribly wrong, because police usually aren't trained for them, and really, they just aren't the people you want to be handling them. Nothing, nothing against them, they're just not the right ones. Here's a case in point, mental health crises. In these situations, a gun, a badge, and a uniform might be exactly the wrong tools for the situation. And addressing a mental health crisis with them can result in tragedy. The death of Daniel Prude in Rochester, New York, was such an instance, among many, many others. Mr. Prude's family called the police when he was in the grip of a mental health crisis. Police used a spit hood on him and other measures. He had difficulty breathing at the scene, and days later, he died. After a months-long cover-up, video was released revealing what had really happened. There was outrage, protest, and ultimately upheaval in the police department and local government. This audio you're about to hear is from NBC News. The female voice that comes on after the announcer is the voice of the mayor of Rochester, whose name is Lovely Warren. Check it out. Amid outrage over the death of Daniel Prude, the police department in Rochester, New York, will now have new leadership after the police chief and a deputy chief abruptly retired. Five other members of the command staff also either retired or were demoted. I can assure this community that I am committed to instituting the reforms necessary in our police department. Now, police can get training, very good training, in fact, to help them understand and handle a person in the grip of a mental health crisis. Recall, if you've been with us for a while, episode 24 with Master Police Officer Patricia Poloka of the Pittsburgh Police Department. She was discussing with us the training that she and others in her department have had. It's called CIT, Crisis Intervention Training. It was pioneered by the Memphis Police Department. It's a great episode. You should check it out. Uh, the CIT, uh, it's good. It's very good, but it's expensive and it's time consuming. And there's no way that most police departments could train all of their officers 
with CIT. They just can't do it. They can't afford it. And given that, you're going to have lots of officers on the street at any given time without it. Pittsburgh itself has not trained all its officers in CIT. And in the end, even CIT trained officers are still they're police officers, and it's not clear that they would always be the best choice for these situations, even if they were trained. What about trained mental health workers or social workers? What if we could dispatch them to these kinds of crises? Would it come out better for people like Daniel Prude and so many others? Now, these questions came up again and again over the last year as cities and towns attempted to come to grips with this issue. And one word, actually, it's an acronym, that came up time after time was CAHOOTS. The CAHOOTS program, it stands for Crisis Assistance Helping Out on the Streets has been a part of the social services landscape in Eugene, Oregon, for decades, over 30 years. Evolving mostly by chance, CAHOOTS is one service that does dispatch trained medics and social workers instead of police when calls come in for mental health crises, homelessness, drug abuse, or a combination of all three when these situations don't involve violence. By almost every reckoning, CAHOOTS has succeeded in helping people when they need it in ways that police probably could not, keeping these people out of the criminal justice system. Perhaps it has even avoided police use of force. And a handful of cities have launched local efforts of their own patterned on cahoots. Now, we have the opportunity on this episode to learn a lot about it from someone who has looked at cahoots carefully on the ground. Uh, is this part of the future of public safety reimagined? If it is, we need to know what we may be getting into and whether it can work in our towns and cities. Rowan Moore Garrity is a journalist and audio producer in Phoenix, Arizona. He has deep experience writing about a really stunning variety of human problems from the U.S. and all around the world. He's reported on technology, the COVID pandemic and its widening impact, the environment, agriculture, working in an Amazon warehouse, and a lot more, too. He's written about both Madagascar and Mozambique, among many other places. His first book took a deep look at those struggling to make it in Mozambique. It was called Go Tell the Crocodiles, Chasing Prosperity in Mozambique. It was published by the New Press in 2018, which you can find at your local bookstores and online. He's written pieces for the New York Times, Harper's, Scientific American, and the Miami Herald, just to name a few. And he's produced radio documentaries and audio documentaries for NPR, the BBC, Marketplace, and Reveal. His audio story for the podcast 70 Million was a 2019 Peabody Award nominee. We're lucky to have him here today to discuss a great piece of his writing that was published in The Atlantic. It's called An Alternative to Police That Police Can Get Behind. And it's about the CAHOOTS program, its beginnings, how it works, and whether it's something that other cities could replicate. We have a link to the piece 
up on our website. Rowan Moore Garrity, welcome to Criminal Justice. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Let's start with where Cahoots kind of comes from. Decades ago, we're in Eugene, Oregon. This is one of the college towns of the Western United States. And it was, of course, a time of real change, not just on college campuses, but everywhere. Uh, The rise of the Haight-Ashbury District in San Francisco plays a little role in this in the background. Now, in those years and the the time that comes after, the, the thing that becomes cahoots begins with the establishment of what's called the White Bird Clinic, modeled on the free clinic in Haight-Ashbury. And in those years, it began by treating a lot of people taking psychedelic drugs uh, that uh, neither the medical establishment nor the police uh, really knew how to deal with. And soon uh, the White Bird Clinic found itself with a mobile crisis response team that would go out to help people who were either unable or unwilling to come to the clinic or other treatment centers. So give us a little quick summary from that point about how CAHOOTS evolved from those beginnings. Sure. So the White Bird Clinic, um, when it opened, um, was sort of envisioned as a place that would refer people to existing services within um, Eugene, in and around Eugene. A lot of volunteers who were students at the University of Oregon um, or people had moved to Eugene to sort of take part in the counterculture. Um, And they pretty quickly found that even though they had um, a lot of help from local volunteer medical professionals, um, there were a lot of people who weren't able to get to a clinic in the state that they were in or didn't really want to come in. And so they had a, a sort of a hotline um, that pretty soon they realized we're going to be able to help a lot more people who are sort of in the midst of crises if we can get out to them. And so they started in a really ad hoc way, going around in, you know, basically any car that was available um, Uh in pairs or in small groups um, to talk to people, try and sort of talk them down, convince them to come and get care, do whatever they could to diffuse situations. Um, You know, you mentioned psychedelic drugs, but my understanding is that actually, you know, there was a fair amount of interpersonal conflict and domestic disputes and sort of you know, they called it the bummer squad after bum trips, but, um, the bummer squad. Yeah. As in, you know, you're having a bum trip, a bad trip. Um, but that (laughs) certainly wasn't the only thing they worked on. And, um, you go to a number of, you know, addresses where somebody is sort of really in vocal distress and pretty soon you're going to start running into the police. And so through the 1970s, there was a little bit of, um, I guess I should say kind of a, you know, an acknowledgement of the, of the function the other parties serve between them and the Eugene Police Department. They didn't exactly work together. Um, there were, um, according to some of the people who were involved, um, small t- sort of informal trainings they held with the police to kind of role play and help the police understand um, what people might be feeling or seeing if they were tripping or having um, some other kind of bad experience that the cops weren't so familiar with. But they didn't really work together. And then the Bummer Squad um, eventually kind of fell apart or, 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 you know, stopped going out to calls, I think, by the early 1980s. And it wasn't until the end of the 1980s when the city was grappling with a lot of um, repeat arrests for kind of 
petty violations, often involving substance abuse, often involving behavioral health and mental health crises or um, homelessness or some combination thereof that the city manager got the idea, hey, maybe we should try and formalize that thing we had going on um, in the 70s. Is there any way that, you know, you, the Whiteberg Clinic, would actually come and work with the cops and vice versa? Because um, they were not a natural pairing. I mean, that's sort of how I describe it no. in the piece. Um, yeah, yeah. They're, they're not natural partners. And yet the call kind of goes out. The police are facing a lot of these problems that are not really suited for. And this city manager kind of sees, you know, maybe we can bring everybody together. You know, the way the cops described it to me, um, who worked in Eugene at the time, was basically you'd be getting a lot of calls for the same group of people. Um, and it would take a lot of time to deal with people who were intoxicated. You might be cleaning feces or vomit out of the back of the squad car. Um, you're doing things you certainly didn't sign up to do or really necessarily have the right training for. And um, on the other side, you know, cahoots and Whitebird, or excuse me, it wasn't cahoots yet, but the Whitebird Clinic really has um, just a totally different approach. Um, they're all about, you know, how do we help this person? It was a non-hierarchical organization. Um, the idea of working with the cops was sort of anathema to, to their approach. Um, and so there was a lot of reluctance, even if the police... Um, saw that they weren't doing a good job. There was a lot of sort of mutual distrust. The police were thinking, you know, wait, are we really going to give these people police radios? Um, these hippies, um, you know, these hippies kind of riding around town in a van, are they really going to get police radios? And on the Whitebird side, it was, you know, what are our clients going to think of us if we're all of a sudden um, turning around and working with the people who, um, from their point of view, sort of spend their working hours antagonizing them? Right. So this is a a gulf of mistrust that has to be overcome in order for what we know is cahoots to kind of form at some point. So basically the city says, you know, if you guys can come together, we'll give you money to try and help solve this problem. And that was the carrot that kind of brought cahoots into formation as a partnership where the police department would be buying services from Whitebird Clinic. And so they set them up in an old jail transport van gave them police radios, and um, people who were, were working at the Whitebird Clinic, initially it was actually volunteer-run, um, would go through a training and start riding around, um, kind of looking, you know, waiting to be called. And initially, the cops were so reluctant to call cahoots that the lieutenant who oversaw the program um, would actually sit in his office um, kind of radioing it, listening to the radio traffic, and he'd call the dispatcher, you know, hey, you know, why wasn't, you know, that person who was having a mental health crisis, why wasn't that a cahoots call? Um, why wasn't that person who was a welfare check because they were passed out in the park, why wasn't that a cahoots call? And so that, that officer is actually helping to move the burden away from the police department because the police department is reluctant. And I think partly it's just a, it was a learning experience. Um, you know, this sure. was the late 1980s. There weren't, you know, dozens of other examples you could look to around the country um, of, you know, even very narrow partnerships between public health organizations and police departments or kind of alternative forms of 911 response. And so everybody was kind of feeling the whole thing out. 
Yeah. So we get the beginnings and then, you know, they kind of begin to work together and these things have a life of their own. Where is it now? How does it work now? Um, uh, what's the what's the structure and um, what is what are they doing on a sort of current basis? I know they work in teams. They are paid now. They're no longer volunteers. They work shifts and they mostly respond without police. Uh, fill the picture out. Sure. So today, um, they respond to about 20% of 911 calls that come into the police department in the city of Eugene and one um, neighboring town called Springfield. And um, it is staffed by pairs of people, uh, one who might come from kind of a street outreach um, or counseling background uh, that they call an outreach worker. And then um, the other is a, a medic. Um, so that could be you know, a nurse or a paramedic. Um, and they ride around, they've got snacks, they've got clothes, they've got first aid equipment. Um, and most important, they just have this very, very intensive training where before they start, um, going out on calls as the sort of, you know, prime mover in either of those roles, they've been on hundreds of calls. It, it takes a, a few months for them to be trained. Um, but they work in 12 hour shifts. There are a couple vans on the street, um, for part of the day and just one van that does the overnight shift into the early morning. Um, and they respond to all kinds of things. Um, about 60% of their calls involve people who are homeless. Um, about two thirds of their calls are first party callers, meaning the person who's experiencing the problem or somebody who is with them um, is making that 911 call as opposed to you know an angry neighbor or a store owner or something like that. And it could be everything from um, somebody who seems at risk of committing suicide to somebody who, you know, wants a ride to a rehab facility to somebody who has, you know, um, bandages they got while they were in the emergency room that haven't been changed in a couple of weeks. And now, you know, they need wound care because it's becoming infected, but they can't get back to the hospital or wouldn't make sense for them to do so. So that's a big plate of stuff for those 20% of the calls. Let me ask, where do the calls come in? There must be an overall kind of 911 system, and somebody must decide which calls go to cahoots and which go to the police. And is there ever overlap? In other words, are there some where police go out with cahoots, and what are those calls about? Sure. So, um, yeah, the calls come into the normal police dispatch center, uh, which is run, um, you know, by, by the city of Eugene. And um, the calls the, the, the calls that are clearly not cahoots calls are probably the most the, most, the easiest to identify. That's where there's any indication of violence or that there's a weapon involved. Um, violence or a weapon. Okay, go ahead. And um, 911, as you know, is really a kind of a fragmented record, right? Somebody's calling, they're maybe pretty mm -hmm. nervous, might be loud around them, they're communicating yes. with the other people in the room. And so that's where that line gets much blurrier. Um, but typically, um, the, the dispatchers, you know, have gotten to know cahoots pretty well over the last 30 odd years. And so um, basically, 
you know, if it's somebody who is experiencing something that's obviously related to a mental health crisis, that's obviously related to substance abuse disorder, or um, that is related to homelessness, that is, you know, and something that does not seem like it could become violent or is violent currently, um, those are clear cahoots calls. Um, where there's gray area, the most common arrangement is actually that the police would respond to a call first and then um, they would report back to the dispatcher, hey, could we get a cahoots, you know, could we get cahoots to come and help here? So one example of that, I rode around on a couple of shifts um, with cahoots when I was there last year and um, one of the first calls we went to was a young um, military veteran who moved to Eugene for a romantic partner and then sort of gotten in a dispute with her and he'd come home after work one day and found um, and they started getting in an argument and then basically there was a restraining order where he was not allowed to go within a couple hundred feet of her house but all his oh, stuff I remember this story yeah all his things are there and where is he going to go and what is he going to do right and so the police are there um, to kind of make sure that you know one, the conflict doesn't flare up in a way that puts anybody's safety at risk, or number two, that he doesn't violate the restraining order. Um, but they can't really figure out how do we get this guy to extricate himself from this situation without, you know, what's the next step, right? He doesn't have anywhere mm -hmm. to sleep. He doesn't have, you know, friends or family in Eugene. Um, ultimately, it turned out that all he needed was for somebody else to go to his car and drive it a few blocks to a motel. And so Cahoots is sitting there with him making phone calls. You know, hey, is this a, good, is this a motel that'll take cash um, that, you know, has a good military discount because he, you know, didn't have a credit card. Um, and, you know, when it came down to it, this was sort of the funny moment in the story. Um, neither of the Cahoots workers drove stick shift. And so I'm sitting there kind of watching this whole thing go down. And at one point they turn to me and say, do you drive stick? <laughs> and it, it, it was a very striking uh, moment to me because it illustrated that, you know, we've got these systems that in some respects, um, all you need is a simple human favor. But once you get the institutions involved, it's really hard to execute, right? Right. And, you know, for the police officer, for various reasons, it would have been unthinkable that they would get out of their cruiser and, you know, drive this guy's car to the motel, uh, the cahoots workers, as it happened, didn't. So I ended up driving with one of the cahoots, with the cahoots medic, a woman named Chelsea Swift, um, to the motel. It was over in about three minutes. Um, and that was what he needed because he couldn't drive it. He'd been drinking, as I recall. Exactly. He'd been drinking. Exactly. So that was the that was the the sort of key variable. Um, but he, he not only had he been drinking, but I think his car was also too close um, for him to get back to it without um, violating the restraining order. Oh, so wow. there are a number of calls like that where basically the cops show up in the middle of some conflict. And then, you know, how do you keep this thing from flaring up again? Well, usually the, some, the, you know, the person needs somewhere to go or they might need just some kind of help, um, a ride across town or a place to stay for the night. Um, and that happened a few times. Or, you know, there are other calls where the cops in Eugene show up and they realize, ooh, you know, we came to this, but in fact, we don't think it's unsafe. 
and we don't think we've got the right skill set to get involved. Let's call cahoots. So that happens quite a lot. And much more rarely it happens that um, cahoots will show up first at a call and then say, you know what, this looks like it could go sideways. Um, let's get the police to do backup. But just to give you a little bit of a sense of context, um, you know, if Cahoots responded to around 15,000 calls um, in a given year, um, they've called, they would call for police backup just a couple hundred times. So that happens pretty infrequently. Um, and the cops, um, you know, call for cahoots, maybe, if, you know, account for kind of a few thousand of those calls. Wow. So it's a partnership that's up running. It's rough and ready. It requires the, the big and the small uh, things to work together. Uh, and everybody is benefiting. Fascinating story. Let's take a quick break here. We're with uh, Rowan Moore-Garrity, he's a journalist. His piece in The Atlantic is about the CAHOOTS program in Eugene, Oregon, now being held up nationwide as an example for one of the ways to reimagine how we deliver police services. Stay with us. We'll be right back. David Harris here with you on Criminal Injustice, and my guest is Rowan Moore-Garrity. He's a journalist, and his piece in The Atlantic is all about the CAHOOTS program, which, if you have been paying attention to questions about who should handle mental health crises or homelessness, and maybe it's not the police, you've heard about CAHOOTS, I bet, even if you don't recognize the name, because it's become the national example for what a program could look like when police aren't the people with the right skills. Uh, Rowan, before the break, uh, we were talking about the percentages of calls handled by CAHOOTS, the, 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 the small number of times in which uh, uh, police uh, would have to be called in uh, on a CAHOOTS call because there was perhaps some semblance of a, or a hint that there might be danger or violence. A uh, police chief in uh, uh, Oregon, in Eugene, Oregon, excuse me, his name is uh, Chris Skinner, and I think he told you that he's really in favor of CAHOOTS. He likes this idea and this agency, if you want to call them that. Tell us a little about his thoughts. Well, I spoke to him, and uh, the way he framed the relationship um, was interesting on a couple levels. Um, first, there's a lot of trust that's built up between Cahoots and the police department there um, over the last generation that they've been doing. Many through. years. Yeah. That yes, that's what it takes. Um, and that has actually been tested, I think. Um, you know, Chief Skinner didn't share this so much, uh, but certainly you could kind of pick it up in talking to people locally, that's been tested in the last year and a half because all of a sudden Cahoots has been sort of thrust into the spotlight as here's the thing, you know, people are chanting defund the police. Here's what we need to fund instead. And right. um, that's awkward for Cahoots because they are directly funded by the Eugene Police Department. Um, and so, you know, when I spoke to him, I think he was enthusiastic about the idea of continuing to expand the service. It actually only became 24 hours um, 
uh, in 2015, or excuse me, 2016, so after about 25 years of operation. Um, and now there's clamoring for CAHOOTS to continue to get a little bit more funding so that they can respond uh, on a more timely basis. Um, and I think he supports that. Um, you know, where it becomes challenging is, you know, cities are, 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 are not just sort of uh, flush with tax revenue they don't know what to do with, right? And so- <laughs> Well put. <laughs> at, at a certain point, it becomes, well, where do you put this marginal dollar? Do you put it towards cahoots or something else? And that something else might be, you know, additional manpower for the police department. It might be new equipment and things like that. And so when you get um, into a conversation with uh, leaders in the police department about, um, well, how many calls does CAHOOTS respond to? There's this interesting tension because um, the statistic that often comes up and which I cite in my piece is CAHOOTS responds to, you know, 17% of the calls for 2% of the budget, right? And anybody who hears that number says, well, that's incredible value. And I think that's the, worth it. The police department agrees. But they would answer, well, not all of those are police calls, right? We wouldn't have responded to that. And you could kind of look at that and say one of two things. You could either say, well, if they aren't actually, if they're responding to a lot of things the police wouldn't have responded to, then that means they're not really a great substitute for the police department, right? Because uh -huh. a lot of the you know core police calls are not able to be handled by cahoots. Or you could look at that and say just the opposite. And you say, well, hold on. All these calls that are coming into 911 the police wouldn't have even responded to. And yet here we have this great service that's going out and that's meeting people's needs. And so maybe it's not that yeah, the need is real. It's mm -hmm. not that cahoots isn't a good fit. It's that the police aren't a good fit. And so it becomes really challenging to try and unpack that call data in a granular way and understand wow. just how much more uh, of the 911 call volume or of the overall sort of, um, realm of police work could an organization like Whitebird handle. Um, it, but um, the, the, the last point I wanted to make it that is one thing that Chief Skinner said to me was, you know, it's a probability game. A certain uh -huh. number of encounters with my officers are going to go bad. I'm paraphrasing here. And, you know, the more times you can put somebody with a different approach without a gun in that situation, um, the fewer opportunities you have for one of those encounters to go south and for it to result in, in a real serious harm. And I th that is really interesting, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I think it's a, it, it, that is, um, I think an awareness that you're going to see in police departments around the country. And the challenge is when it comes down to negotiating, um, where do you put that line, right? Where, yeah. What does it mean to say that Cahoots only responds to calls where there's not a hand of violence? You know, anybody's got a kitchen knife in their kitchen, right? So if there's a domestic disturbance in their home, uh -huh. somebody's locked in the bathroom, um, you know, there are all kinds of ambiguous situations that come into 911. Like I said, you have sort of a fragment of information and you need to make that call. And I think historically in most places, we have really focused on the potential risk of not sending the police 
um, to the detriment of considering the risks that come from sending the police and the harm that can result from that. Right, right. And I, I did read in your piece, and I recall this from my own work, that uh, uh, Barry Friedman at NYU has attempted to sort of quantify whether there's a uh, whether there's a, a, a measurable difference in say use of force by police that might be accounted for by cahoots, and I think his conclusion was he couldn't really he couldn't say that. Well, so I don't know. Um, I I the. I just want to pause. The, the reference to Barry Friedman in my piece was about his paper called Disaggregating the Police Function, and it wasn't based on a real sort of um, close look at use of force statistics in Eugene, but it was, a, I think, a broad and very useful look at this thing that people um, often call the skills mismatch. In other words, uh -huh. when people call the police, who are they really calling for? Are they calling for somebody who can resolve a conflict? Are they calling for you know somebody who can um, resolve a violent conflict? Are they calling for somebody to respond while a crime is taking place? Are they calling for somebody to come and take good notes and figure out what happened here? Um, are they calling for a medical need? Are they calling for you know somebody who's you know want, is ready to stop using drugs? Right there all kinds of things that end up getting funneled through this system. And then the way we take it in that, take in that information doesn't totally um, communicate the sort of richness and, and variety of, of what comes over the transom in 911. Yeah. It's a great point too. Uh, it, it, the systems where they come together are so complex themselves, and they serve different needs that attempting to quantify things becomes really difficult. Um, the, another point that I think you raise in the piece that is really worth considering is how cahoots exist in this very rich, comparatively speaking, a very rich sort of social services ecosystem. They have people that they can send folks in the community to. They have places they can refer to people. And not all cities or towns are going to have as many options. So uh, cahoots-like service depends on those things. And so that leaves a real question, an open question, of whether it would it succeed everywhere. Yeah, one of the uh, folks who's been at Cahoots for a very long time and now actually um, focuses on consulting work with other cities around the country that are interested in adopting their model um, said to me, you know... This is Tim Black, I think, Yes, right? Tim Black. Yeah. You know, he said um, he'd gotten a call and had been working with a, a rural jurisdiction in Oregon um, that was very excited because they'd secured funding to expand Cahoots, um, and they were ready to kind of put it on a quick timeline and get it up and running within, you know, or something like Cahoots, up and running within a few months. And he said, where are you going to send people if not to the hospital or the jail? Meaning, you know, right now, the only services you've got there, um, you know, if it's an ambulance that comes, they're going to go to the hospital. If it's the cops that come, they're going to go to the jail. And even if we had a different kind of van out on the streets, a different vehicle out on the streets with a different group of people to resolve the crisis, that might be really helpful for that crisis moment or, you know, whatever the sort of particular circumstances in the moment are. Um, but you still need to find a way to build up the infrastructure um, so that you can have a more lasting resolution to some of these challenges.
Absolutely. And and that sort of, you know, you can look at, at that aspect of it and say, wait, your town doesn't have these things. You can also turn around the other way uh, and realize that Eugene is a fairly small city. It's, um, I looked it up, it's 170,000 people. And then you have that outlying area of Springfield that you talked about. So they're serving not a tiny area, but not Los Angeles, not Chicago. Do you see the possibilities for scaling something like this up? What would that be like? Could it work? What is, what is your feeling? We're finding out in a lot of places, or, or, or we soon will. Um, my feeling is that absolutely we can and should work really hard to scale up um, a Cahoots-like model uh, because I think this remains um, – it's not that it's easy to pull off, but it's that – um, I think our imagination has sort of atrophied in terms of what's possible. And right. we get this narrowing of the conversation that happens in a lot of places where you say, um, you know, how do we avoid the harm from, you know, encounters with the police? Um, how do we avoid police shootings? How do we avoid police killings? And oftentimes, depending on the underlying case, um, it will kind of resolve to, well, police surely shouldn't be responding to somebody who has a, you know, a psychotic break in the middle of the day in a residential neighborhood or something like that. But that's, you know, that's a pretty acute circumstance and it's a pretty specific circumstance. And so mm -hmm. what you get is a lot of programs um, or a lot of the sort of conversation around scaling up a cahoots-like model where instead of looking at the whole gambit of what um or the, the the whole spectrum of things that cahoots responds to which is you know first aid and talking to self-harming teenagers and you know helping somebody detox and you know whatever it may be you end up with this sort of okay well when there's clearly a mental health crisis when somebody is sort of floridly hallucinating in the street you know, that is the moment when we will, you know, not reach for our police squad cars, but reach for somebody else. When, in fact, you see that Cahoots responds to a whole range of things um, that could take a much bigger bite out of the apple. And so I think one of the primary risks as um, cities move to adopt um, a program like Cahoots is that they won't actually think ambitiously enough about Huh. what it might be able to handle. The flip side of that is um, I don't want people to undervalue um, the local context and local culture in Eugene and just what an important role that has played. Um, White Bird Clinic is not your average nonprofit in terms of you know what you'd look for when you're looking for a sort of partner to run this thing. Um, like I said, they're a non-hierarchical organization you know, everybody makes around the same salary. They make decisions even on hirings and firings via consensus. And so they have a very different spirit from um, most um, social service providers around the country. And they have a spirit that really stretches back a couple generations into, you know, sort of local history in Eugene. And as a result, even though they work directly with the cops, on the street, they have 
you know, I hate to use this sort of corporate language, but their brand is extremely strong and completely distinct from the police. In other words, nobody is at risk of saying, oh, White Bird, you know, they're in cahoots with the police, which is actually... So to speak, yeah. How the, how the name sort of started out as, a, as, a, as a, a kind of a wink and a nod to that whole idea. And so I do worry um, that, again, you know, as people start to look for, well, how, what's the institutional... Um, arrangement we can make in LA, in Houston, in New York to scale this up. Okay, well, we'll put it in the fire department or, um, you know, we'll get some, you know, big local social service provider to do this. They might be underrating um, the role that that sort of specific history plays in terms of the credibility that Cahoots has with the people that Cahoots is dealing with. Because when they show up- Very important point, yeah. When they show up, even if the cops are the ones who called them there, the tenor of the interaction changes completely, right? Wow, wow. So as you look forward, Rowan, uh, into the future, you mentioned in your article that there are several large cities sort of thinking about this. What do you think, where will we be uh, in uh, two, three, or five years? Uh, You know, are mayors and police and public safety officials receptive to this? Uh, Do you think they're going to try to do it? Um, I mean, we're in this moment when crime, at least homicide and shootings are surging and people are calling for more police service and there's not a ton of money to go around. What do you see looking ahead? Are we going to look back in uh, three, four or five years from now and see a number of these in other cities? I really hope so. Um, Again, I think the likely resolution may be that we get um, a lot of places with – you know, something that is at least nominally inspired by cahoots, even if they have a much narrower um, set of responsibilities. And I think it is, you know, incumbent on people locally, both elected officials and people who care about these issues, to really um, watch carefully and figure out um, how is this going to limit you know, the scope of, of this new program we're scaling up, or is this going to give it enough support, right? Um, you know, you mentioned um, LA as a point of comparison. That's a fact, it's a city I know pretty well. And it's fascinating to think about because you probably wouldn't want, you know, the same team responding in South LA as you would in East LA, as you would in Venice. just different places, yeah. Right, and they're an hour apart, and they're demographically totally different, and there are even language barriers, you know, depending on who shows up. And so um, you're going to need to think really carefully in these places about kind of who's the right person, right, or who's the right group of people or the right organization to support this kind of work, and how do we design a program and design a funding mechanism that doesn't exclude them. Um, One fascinating example that was actually pointed out to me by a reader um, was when when Ron Wyden, who's a senior senator from Oregon, introduced the Cahoots Act um, last year, he announced it as... um, you know, a piece of legislation that will offer Medicaid matching funds to jurisdictions that want to start a cahoots-like program. And that all sounds great. But at least in the initial draft of that legislation, um, it would have required um, licensed behavioral health professionals, which cahoots has never required and which many of great cahoots Uh workers have not been. And it would have required them to be 24-hour 
operations, which again, Cahoots was not for the first 25 years of its existence. And so, you know, as you kind of start to make these hard choices, what are the call, the 911 call codes that Cahoots can respond or that the, you know, Cahoots spinoff could respond to? Um, how much are we going to pay these people? What's the training going to look like? Um, all of these questions could wind up, you know, excluding um, people who do a really good job or somehow limiting the sort of room to grow or shaping the collaboration um, with this kind of public safety apparatus as it exists in profound ways. Our guest has been journalist and audio producer Rowan Moore Garrity. He's the author of the article, An Alternative to Police That Police Can Get Behind, about the Cahoots Crisis Intervention Program in Eugene, Oregon, which has been held up, as you probably know, as a national example of how mental health and homeless crises can be handled by agencies other than the police. His article appeared in The Atlantic, and of course, we have a link to it up on our website. Thank you so much for being my guest here on Criminal Injustice. Thank you. Great talking with you. Stay around. We're back in a minute with another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly. Now let's wind it up like we do on every episode with another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly, Judicial Branch, and this episode's lawyer, Judge Behaving Badly, from stories by Reuters, Politico, Newsweek, and the ABA Journal News Online, to name just a few, is a multiple Lawyer Behaving Badly nominee, far surpassing any other person to be recognized here as a lawyer behaving badly. Ladies and gentlemen, listeners of all ages, I give you, once again, two-time former Chief Judge of the Alabama Supreme Court, booted from office both times, and failed U.S. Senate candidate Roy Moore. Yes, folks, it's Roy Moore, elected Chief Justice of the Alabama Supreme Court twice, thrown out of office twice, when in direct violation of the Constitution and in defiance of federal court orders, he refused to remove a large version of the Ten Commandments from his courtroom. Well, those judicial elites couldn't get rid of him so easily. Throw me off the bench, will you? Okay, I'll just have to run for the U.S. Senate. A popular figure in Alabama, Moore might even have won, except that women began to come forward, alleging that as an adult while working as a prosecutor, he had had sex with and sometimes coerced and sexually assaulted these women when they were minors. Oh my, as one of my friends said at the time, the guy seemed to be just a bottomless font of awful. Moore lost his Senate race amidst those allegations and perhaps might have sunk into stinky obscurity. But no, he didn't, and for that we owe a debt of thanks... Or is it a shout of indignation to none other than the British comedian Sasha Baron Cohen? 
That's right, it is a Borat! Nice! Now, if you are a Sasha Baron Cohen fan, you know that Borat is only one of Sasha Baron Cohen's many comedic creations. He originally became famous playing another character, the idiotic British sort of hip-hop quasi-journalist interviewer, Ali G, who did hilarious TV interviews with famous public figures. Newt Gingrich, Boutrous Boutrous Ghali of Egypt, who was the former Secretary General of the UN, and so many others, asking them ridiculous questions and putting them in ultra-embarrassing situations, all without them knowing it was a setup. So how does Roy Moore fit into this now? In 2016, for a show on the network Showtime and CBS, Roy Moore was invited to New York to get an award for his support of Israel. In the run-up to the ceremony, Roy Moore sat for an on-camera interview with an Israeli anti-terrorism official named Iran Morad. During the interview, the official showed a new technological device to Judge Moore looking something like a metal detector wand one sees at an airport or courthouse security checkpoint, the officials said that it would detect the tunnels that terrorists had dug into Israeli territory to make deadly raids. The instrument could also, he said, detect a specific enzyme emitted from the bodies of people who were pedophiles. When the Israeli official held the wand near Moore, it went off, squeaking noisily. Moore ended the interview. You've surely already guessed, or maybe you saw, this hilarious piece. Of course, the anti-terrorism official was Sasha Baron Cohen. Even though Moore had terminated the interview when the pedophile detector beeped on him, the whole thing was aired on a comedy series called who is America? Shown, as I said, on Showtime and CBS, on which Sasha Baron Cohen played various fictional characters, Morad being one of these. So what happened? Well, Roy Moore and his wife, who was also present for the interview, they sued Sasha Baron Cohen and the networks involved for $95 million for defamation, fraud, and infliction of emotional distress. The suit was to be heard in U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New York, big-time litigation by the former Alabama Supreme Court Justice. Surely this could not come as good news to satirist Sasha Baron Cohen or the Showtime and CBS networks. But maybe former Chief Justice and lawyer Moore should have considered something before this. You see, Moore had signed a release before the interview. A release in which he gave up the right to sue for, wait for it, fraud, defamation, and infliction of emotional distress. So, former Chief Justice of the Law in Alabama, that means you can't sue. It's not allowed. You gave it up the court threw out Judge Moore's case. The court also said that since this was a matter of considerable public interest and was satire as well, the claims by Moore's wife, who was also present, were tossed out too. 
So, former Chief Justice and lawyer, judge behaving badly more, allow me to dispense a little free advice for you. Read before you sign, and review what you signed before you file your lawsuit. I wouldn't be surprised to find you, or perhaps your lawyers, or perhaps both, sanctioned for filing this suit, which is now thrown out. It's hard to argue that you had a good-faith basis to bring it, what with that extremely clear release you signed. But with the reputation and the shape yours is in, maybe you didn't even care. And that's been your whole problem all along, hasn't it? So... Just another dumpster fire for you, just like all of the others of the past 10 years. Congratulations on being a multi-episode lawyer-slash-judge-behaving-badly. It couldn't happen to a nicer person. And that closes another episode of Lawyers Behaving Badly, Judicial Branch, and with it, we wrap up another episode of Criminal Injustice. Subscribe to Criminal Injustice with our RSS feed, if you haven't already, and share us all over social media. Review us, please. A good review will help people find us. Check out our website, that's criminalinjusticepodcast.com, for all of our interviews, our news items, and more stories of lawyers behaving badly. Got a question about the criminal justice system? Go to the Ask Dave area on our website, and I'll see if I can give it a whack on the show. You can also call in your question by leaving us your first name, where you're calling from, and your brief question. That number is 412-407-3389. Again, 412-407-3389. Remember, we are listener-supported. If you like what you hear and you want to help, do that by going to patreon.com slash criminal injustice. We really do appreciate it. Thanks for listening. I'm David Harris, and I'll be back with you next time. As the country looks for a better alternative to police for people in crisis, Eugene, Oregon's Cahoots is the model. So what happens when a much bigger city tries this approach? We learn about the STAR program in Denver. That's on the next episode of Criminal Injustice. Find it on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app or at criminalinjusticepodcast.com. <laughs>